Hello and welcome to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I am Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @getearfuel and at the Daily Guru. The podcast is available at SoundCloud.com/getearfuel and in the iTunes Store under Ear Fuel. Glad to have you along this week. My apologies for my shredded voice, but you know they say that if you don't leave a night of karaoke barely able to talk because you rocked out so hard, you didn't really enjoy your night of karaoke, right? Right. Anyway, no interview this week because there's a huge event coming up this weekend that I wanted to address, and we will get to that right after a quick album review. The album I want to dig into this week is the brand new one from Charles Bradley, and it's simply called Changes. Now, if you don't know Charles Bradley already, you have a ton of catching up to do. His previous two records are more than worth owning, and his sound is always on point. In short, He's in his late 60s, and he only started performing his own material a few years ago. More to the point, he didn't perform at all until he was 40-something. But hearing his sound, you'd actually assume he was one of the great soul singers from the 60s, as his voice is somewhere between Otis Redding and James Brown, and his live shows are absolutely stunning. So, this... His third album is another solid addition to his catalog, as once again, every element fires perfectly, and it results in what, honestly, I think this is going to be one of my favorite albums of the summer. The production on the album is, unsurprisingly, ridiculously good. It overflows with that warm, yet cutting sound, and you can really sink deep into these songs, and you can kind of feel the heat coming off of them. I really love the way this record kicks off. It feels like... I don't know, it feels like the opening to a classic movie in some ways, or like the, I don't know, unofficial beginning of summer or something. I can't really explain it. It it just feels like a vintage New York City summer afternoon for some reason. Uh, Give it a listen. I think you'll understand. Within just a few minutes, this record has you hooked with deep, soulful, raw grooves, and the steam coming off of the first few songs is nothing short of delightful. As always, the way the horns work is one of the best elements of Charles Bradley's songs, as they represent this magnificent countersound to his vocals. But this album finds him stretching out more than ever before, from the viral cover of Black Sabbath's Changes, to tones of Isaac Hayes' Hot Buttered Soul, to some gritty psychedelic moments, this album really has it all for him. It's just one of those records that keeps getting better as it goes, but it never loses sight of that core of killer soul music. Now, now, getting back to that Sabbath cover real quick, it came out a couple years ago. Most people checked it out. I mean, it's it's really where you can feel the horns. Uh, they, they allow for so much more depth on these songs, and that's a damn good song to begin with. So that's saying something. If you haven't heard the cover yet, check it out. I think it's going to get you hooked on the record. Whether you're looking for some crazy hot soul or some smooth loving soul, it's all here. I mean, just go spin crazy for your love and you'll get it. I say this every time he releases a new album, but it's just as true. These songs could have easily been released in 1968 and fit perfectly, yet they definitely feel modern at the same time. Simply put, Charles Bradley continues to make one of the most enjoyably unique brands of soul music in history, and Changes is more than worth a ton of spins, so go get your ears on it now. Moving on, later this week, we will have the yearly induction ceremony for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Few things get music fans more riled up than the yearly announcement of inductees, and this time around, it was no exception. So let's take a bit and dig into why people have such huge issues with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and if there's any real basis for all of that drama. 
This year, Deep Purple led the list of inductees, and their inclusion into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is long overdue. And while you may not like their music, I don't, few will argue the impact of the band Chicago, though calling them rock, eh, perhaps a bit questionable. And we're going to get to that exact question in a bit. But it's bands like Steve Miller and Cheap Trick, along with rap pioneers N.W.A., that have people arguing at length this year. And while they may not be as offensive to music or your ears as Green Day being inducted last year, it once again opens the Pandora's box of the worth and mission of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So first up, a very brief history of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. While many people seem to think this is some age-old institution, even the idea of a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is less than 40 years old. In the early 80s, 1983 to be exact, music icon and Atlantic Records chairman and founder Ahmet Ettergen created the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation. He brought together what was basically a board of directors that included Jan Warner from Rolling Stone, execs like Seymour Stein, and a few music legal types, and that was kind of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation. So they've got this group of industry big hitters, and now they just need an actual building. So, you know, they can have a hall for a hall of fame. You need to have a hall. So they needed a building. Anyway, there are basically five cities vying for the museum. Detroit, because of Motown Records. Memphis, because of Sun Studios and Stax Records. Cincinnati, because of King Records. Cleveland, because of local DJ Alan Freed coining the term rock and roll in the 50s and the impact of the once great radio station WMMS. And New York City, because it's New York City. So after about three years of lobbying, due to the financial package they offered and the history of the city and how strongly the people in the city reacted and pushed for it, Cleveland was awarded the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum. But it would take nearly a decade for the museum to actually be built and open. In the intervening years, though, they began to induct artists into the Hall of Fame with their yearly ceremony getting more and more exposure each year. The first class was massive, with the likes of Elvis, Chuck Berry, Ray Charles, the Everly Brothers, James Brown, and Jerry Lee Lewis. And then in the second year, you finally saw the first female inducted in the form of Aretha Franklin. So, you know, let's just stop the history lesson right there, because one of the main issues people have with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has actually been there since day one. And most people think it's something that's only happened over the last few years. What I'm talking about here is the whole question of what is rock and roll? What is, what is worthy of being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? That is to say, when groups like Metallica or NWA get inducted, everyone gets all bent out of shape saying that that isn't really rock and roll, that's not rock and roll music, and stuff like that. Trust me, they talk like that. But in that very first induction class, you have James Brown, you have Sam Cooke, you have the Everly Brothers. Though they all definitely had elements of rock at some point in their career, I don't think anyone would really refer to them as rock acts first, or second, or sometimes third in some cases. Look at the second year of inductions. You have B.B. King, you have Marvin Gaye, you have Bo Diddley. Same story, right? Many people will try and argue that those groups aren't as obviously non-rock as a group like Public Enemy or Grandmaster Flash. I hear it all the time. But think about it. B.B. King is about as blues as they get. And name me any artist ever who was more soul music than James Brown. I mean, four years in, and you've got Simon and Garfunkel, Bobby Darin, The Supremes. So as much as you may want to argue that non-rock first artists being inducted is some sort of new thing, it's just not. The reality is, people tend to get caught up on a name and semantics, and with good reason, I think. It's called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So by nature, it should be about rock bands. I get that. Joe Montana's not in the Basketball Hall of Fame, right? 
really hope he's not or else that's not going to work. But think about it. Aside from calling it the, I don't know, the Music Hall of Fame, there's really no way to catch all of the genres represented. And from a marketing perspective, throwing the word rock and roll in front of it, it gives it a bit more of an edge. It gives more feeling to it. Maybe the popular Music Hall of Fame would have been more fitting. But there's very little country, almost zero jazz, and no classical represented in the current inductees in the Hall of Fame. So that's not super accurate either. So I guess we just have to call it the non-country popular music after about 1957 Hall of Fame. Perhaps that name change would stop people from getting so hung up on three words. But probably not, right? Putting the whole name thing behind us, there are other issues to be had with the Rock Hall and their ways, and another big point of contention is the actual voting process for the inductees. The only real rule for eligibility is that it must be at least 25 years since a band's first album was released. So literally anyone, anybody, the bar band down the street from you, if they fit that criteria, they could in theory be nominated to the Rock Hall. For those who don't know, though, here's a crash course on how a band gets inducted. Before you even get to the voting process, there's a small nominating committee of about 40 people. These are big-time musicians and music scholars, along with members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame executive board. Each of these people can bring up to three acts they feel are worthy of nomination. Now, in theory at this stage, you're only talking about the impact and influence of the group in question. Nothing about album sales or any of that. It's, it's more of a cultural perspective thing in theory, but obviously if you're talking about a group that had a massive cultural influence, chances are they sold a lot of records. So that group votes amongst themselves and they get the list down to 15 nominees. Now that list, the list of 15, goes to a larger voting body. That one is somewhere between six and 700 people. And again, this is taken from across the industry in terms of musicians, writers, managers, the whole nine. And oh yeah, if you're a living inductee, you get a vote as well. This is also the stage where the fan vote that's gone on the last few years, that's where this comes into effect, but don't be fooled. All of those tens of hundreds of thousands of votes that happens there, it counts for one of the 600 and some odd votes. So don't get too bent out of shape when the one that wins the fan poll doesn't get inducted because it's just one vote. So for those of you who love to run out there with the why isn't my favorite band in there wine, well, it's not just one person disagreeing with you. It's a few hundred people disagreeing with you. There are many claims of favoritism or that certain higher-ups in the voting process have made it their mission to keep certain bands out. They're, they're pretty big and they happen every single year. Just go Google the Monkees in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or the Dave Clark Five voting drama. I don't want to talk about it here because nothing's really been proven as fact, but there's certainly some shady dealings going on. Now, my biggest issue with the voting process is similar to that of many fans. It's, it's sort of the whole uh, cart before the horse theory, I suppose. The best example of this for me is probably the Stooges, one of my all-time favorite bands who were finally inducted in 2010. Many will point to the Stooges as one of the uh, foundationary, because I'm going to make that a word now, bands of punk and hardcore. And it's hard to picture the glam rock movement happening like it did without Iggy Pop. Yet before the Stooges were inducted, bands like Blondie and The Clash and The Ramones were inducted into the hall. And, and it's not that those bands aren't worthy. One of those bands is my favorite band of all time. But it's never made sense how they failed to put the pioneers or the touchstone bands in first. You can see this in almost every genre of music. Or, hey, look at the fact that groups like Yes and Slayer are still on the outside, yet countless bands they influenced Metallica are in there. It just makes no sense at all. 
If you want to hear more detail on the Rock Hall voting process and things like that, a few years back, I actually interviewed the then president of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Terry Stewart. You can find it at youtube.com slash the daily guru. And I'll also throw a link into the show notes. We talk about all sorts of things about the Rock Hall, and it was definitely a cool time. But perhaps my biggest gripe of all of them with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is how amazingly un-rock and roll the induction ceremony is. I mean, it's basically megastars and super rich suits gathered together at a fancy dinner. That's about as un-rock and roll as you can possibly get. They might as well get in tuxedos and have some once funny comedian host the evening. I'm not saying it should be in some dump of a venue with cheese doodles and root beer, but the ceremony pretty much has nothing to do with the fans. And the fans are the ones who made them famous. It is what I like to call a giant wank fest, and it misses the point of the universality of music completely, specifically rock and roll. For example, after the 2014 inductions in Brooklyn, whether you like him or not, Dave Grohl and company ended up at this small club called St. Vitus. They had tons of huge guests joining on them on this super small stage. It was unannounced, and it was totally awesome. We need more of that. If I had my way, and I don't, but if I did... I would make it so that one of the conditions for induction into the Rock Hall was that you had to play a gig with all of the other bands for fans, one night only, and the city would change every year. So, you know, one year you might have the induction concert in, I don't know, Tulsa, and the next year maybe it's in Jacksonville. But it keeps moving to a different city every year so that different fans get to see a group of legendary performers each year. Makes it fair, and it's all about the fans. Making it more about the fans is what the Rock Hall continues to not only miss, but move further away from each year. And that is a frustrated argument I am more than happy to have. Whew, yeah. Okay, that was a lot I had to get out of my system. But it just drives me nuts that each year when the Rock Hall inductions come around, it's the same whining and complaining from fans about why didn't my favorite band get in and why is there rap in the Rock Hall? The first argument has a bit of basis. And the second is just getting old, and it's time to move on. The Rock Hall is far from perfect, and they're the first to admit it. But having been there a number of times, I can say, checking out the museum is well worth the trip to Cleveland, as the permanent collection is really a fun trip through rock and roll history. I guess my biggest question to all of you is, who do you think is the most overlooked act that is still not in the Rock Hall, and what artist absolutely shocked or offended you when they got inducted? Hit me on Twitter with your answers. I am very curious to hear. So that's my thoughts on the Rock Hall. Breathe. But before we call it a week, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, welcome. Each week, I assign an album to listen to in full from beginning to end without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the idea that these days, music has kind of been relegated to a background task for most people. You're driving, you're at the gym, you're at work, whatever, and the assignment is about consciously listening to music only for the sake of music. Now this week, since they are getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, your assignment is Deep Purple's Essential 1972 album, Machine Head. First off, yes, yes, yes. This is the album that has smoke on the water on it. As one of the two or three most memorable guitar riffs in history, that alone makes this record more than iconic. I mean, so many people of another generation got turned on to this one, thanks to Beavis and Butthead, decades after it was a hit. And man, I mean, the song just rocks. You can't get past it. Smoke on the Water is a classic. It kills it every time, but there's a ton more going on on this record other than just that song. 
the album opener, which is also the title track. It's become one of those, I don't know, I hate to call it this, but second-tier rock anthems. It's it's a first-tier for me, and chances are you've heard it in part or full countless times, and you just might not know this one by name. The groove is deep, and oh, that lead riff. I mean, look, if you want to know what Deep Purple are all about on this record, just listen to the first song. Monster riffs powering songs that make you want to push the gas all the way down and turn the volume all the way up. And then there's also the keys. I mean, you've got to talk about the keys, not just on the title track, but oh, all across this album. The keys are one of the coolest parts of this record. It, the, the album sits in that sweet spot between hard rock and heavy metal, where it's got just enough of the latter to get your horns up, but it won't turn away those who want to keep it in more of a traditional world of rock. I mean, there's even some tinges of folk, some nods to psychedelic mixed in there with all of this rock and roll majesty. As far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the building blocks of metal, you've got Zeppelin, you've got Sabbath, and that third spot must belong to Deep Purple. You can just feel how locked in they are on this record, especially on the pairing of the songs Picture of Home and Never Before, which for me are the unsung heroes of this album. The record just rocks from beginning to end, delivering one rock classic after another and anchored by two of the greatest and most influential hard rock heavy metal crossover tracks in history. For those who know Deep Purple, chances are you're nodding your head right now. And for those unfamiliar, you've got a lot of smiles and fists in the air in your future. Once you're done listening this week, Hop on Twitter, hit me at at the Daily Guru or at Get Earfuel, and let me know your favorite moment on this album. There's a lot to choose from. Anyone and everyone who likes rock must know Deep Purple. So dig in and go beyond the hit and spend some time with Machine Head. Thank me later. So that's all for this week. As always, the podcast is available in the iTunes store under Earfuel and at SoundCloud.com slash Get Earfuel. And hey, if you dug things, go tell a friend or three. That is your weekly Earfuel. Share and enjoy. <laughs> 